would, let's bow our heads again to the Lord and ask for his help as we look at his word. Lord, I thank you for this day once again and the beauty of it. I thank you for the power of the cross that we just sang about, and I ask that you would give me help now as I seek to talk about the wisdom and the power of the cross of Christ. And Lord, we'll be on this topic for a few weeks. I just pray that you would stir our hearts, open our eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus in his weakness and now in his majesty, exalted on the throne. And Lord, I pray that you would help us open our ears right now to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, in this morning's message, we are going to be continuing on in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, the church that lived in the ancient city of Corinth. And if you remember this letter, 16 chapters long, and Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's addressing 10 topics. Several of the topics he's caught wind of, things that are going on in the church, that are really, really messed up. Like, chapter 5, one guy is has his father's wife, and it's his new girlfriend. And he's part of the church, and the church isn't doing anything about it. You've got your dad's wife, bud. This is a mess. Chapter 6, they're dragging each other into court and suing each other, and then showing up on Sunday. Okay, So there's, there's a lot of things going on that he's caught wind of, and chapters 1 to 4, they're fighting about church leaders. Some people really like this guy named Apollos. Man, he can really preach. And other people really like Paul. And then some people are like, well, we're just Jesus people. right here." And uh, so they're, they're breaking up. They're, they're, the church is in, having all kinds of troubles. And so Paul is writing, telling them, you should not divide over church leaders. In verses... 10 to 17, last week, we saw Paul gave, he's working through three main reasons here. And, and the first reason in 10 to 17 of chapter 1 was that you shouldn't divide over all these church leaders like I've heard you're doing because you have one leader, Jesus. One Savior, Jesus. And so the way that the church has been platforming these different human leaders, like celebrities, and parading them around, it was a mess, and it, it was wrong. So, chapter 1, verses 10 to 7, he says, the reason it's wrong is because Jesus is your leader. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 16, Paul is going to unpack... Another reason why the Corinthians are going about things the wrong way when they divide over teachers. So in these chapters, he's in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 16, he's going to say, first, the problem was Jesus is your leader. Now he's saying, you're being affected by the worldly way of thinking. The way that the world views wisdom and power has just saturated the church. So that you look just like them. Just like the celebrity culture around you. And that's a problem. This is not the wisdom of God, says Paul. The wisdom shown in the good news about a king who was crucified. 
So in chapters 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 16, Paul's going to unpack several ways that God's wisdom contradicts this worldly wisdom that has been seeping in to the church. First, Paul's going to say in verses 18 to 25, that's what we're going to really focus on today, he's going to say that the, the message of the cross is a completely different wisdom than the world wisdom. So if you're trying to look at the world for how they think about a wise way of salvation, a wise message, then you're going to miss the cross. It's going to seem like a stupid thing to you. Okay, so that's the first thing. We're going to look at that today. Why is the cross foolishness to the world, but God's power to those who trust Jesus? Next week, in verses 26 to 31, Paul is going to talk about how the, the, the people that God has brought into his family to be his special people are not the type of people that the world would say would 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 ultimately pick. Like if you're let's imagine you're made the captain of a pickup softball game and you're looking at this group of people and it's like, who am I gonna pick? Well that guy's only got um, one arm. I'll pick him. Well that guy can't see. I'll pick him. What are you doing? Oh, I'll take the three-year-old. I'll take the elderly man. This guy's never played baseball in his life. Sign him up. Like That's how God picks his team. So that's next week. And the world's like, what are you doing? So God can show his power through them. God shows the weak things of this world. If you be weak, you're on the right team. And then... In verses 1 to 5, and then verses 6 to 16 of chapter 2, Paul's going to talk about a couple more reasons. He's going to say, look, God picked a really unimpressive preacher to share his gospel. Not only did he pitch, pick an unimpressive team, just look at you all, you're a mess. Um, he, he says, God picked an unimpressive preacher he says, look at me. I'm nothing special. And we'll, we talked about that last week. Paul wasn't. He wasn't a dynamic, charismatic preacher. Man, he could write some good letters. But Paul has been chosen by God to preach in an unimpressive way so that people would not be impressed by Paul, but that they would hear what Paul said and say, wow, Christ, the power. Of God. I want Christ and not Paul. So that's where we're headed. I just wanted to give you kind of like a trailer. Paul's, Paul's saying the way that you need to think about wisdom is completely different than the way the world thinks about wisdom and power. And this week is the first installment, verses 18 to 25. So let's look at these verses together. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness. You know what foolishness is? It's like stupid. Nonsense. To those who are 
perishing. But to those who are, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, Paul says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews, Jewish people, demand signs. Do something spectacular. Greeks look for wisdom. Tell me something wise. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. They trip over him, Jesus. And foolishness to Gentiles, to, to people that are like you and me, aren't Jewish. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ we preach. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For, here's his reason, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So there's two main points that we're going to look at this morning. And they're both found in verse 18. First, the cross is foolishness and weakness to the perishing. Second, the cross is God's power and wisdom to those who are being saved. So I'll read verse 18 so that you can see these two points clearly. I didn't make them up. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then look at the verse 19. You see the word for there? And verse 21, you see the word for? And verse 25, you see the word for? All of these verses saying for, 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 because, 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 they're supporting verse 18. Verse 18 is the main point. It's like you said, I'm going to the store for, I need groceries, and for, it's Friday and now I have money, and for, we're having company over. Like, verse 18 is supported by everything else. So verse 18 is the main point that he's trying to get across. There's two groups of people in the world, the perishing and those who are being saved. And the cross makes the difference. So here, the cross is foolishness and weakness to the perishing. Before we go any further... Got to make something clear. Who are the perishing that Paul is talking about, and what does it mean to perish? Perish is an old-fashioned word, just means die. The cross is foolishness and weakness to the dying. The last time I checked, every single one of us are dying. I'm dying right now. The day of my death is closer than it was 30 seconds ago. I am preaching, as I always preach, as a dying man to dying men and women. Right now, we're all, in a sense, perishing. But, for those who are trusting in Jesus, the man who perished on the cross, the closer we get to the date of our death, the closer we get to resurrection, 
and living with him forever in the new creation he will bring one day when he returns. So there's those who are perishing, which is all of us apart from Jesus, are dying. And then there's those who are being saved from perishing through Jesus. That doesn't mean you will not physically die. It means that when you die, because of Jesus, your story will be different. You will be raised. And so to these folks who are perishing, to all humans everywhere who do not follow the rescuer, Paul says the cross looks like foolishness and weakness. Now there's two main camps of these perishing people that Paul's going to single out here in these verses. Two groups that think the cross is just foolish and weak. First, there's the Jews, Jesus' people. The people of the promise. God's chosen people that God promised to bring the, the rescuer, Jesus, through their family into the world. Born into the family of David the king. And then there's the people he simply calls Greeks here. The Jews and the Greeks, which is kind of a filler for Gentiles. Everybody that's not a Jew. They reject the cross. But for somewhat, for somewhat different reasons, Paul says. Just like everyone today thinks the cross is pointless or stupid or just kind of weird. For different reasons. We can see these two groups show up in multiple places here in these verses. Jews and Gentiles. Both are operating their lives under a type of wisdom that doesn't come from God. So in verse 19, Paul quotes an Old Testament verse to give support, proof for what he says. Isaiah 29, verse 14. He says that God is a God who's in the business of humbling people who think that they have wisdom and knowledge apart from him. And he will frustrate the wisdom of the wise, the people that think they've got it all figured out apart from God. He'll frustrate their wisdom with his own wisdom. Isaiah is predicting ultimately what God is going to do through Jesus. Then in verse 20, Paul outlines the two groups. It's like he's summoning a big trial. We're going to see who's wisest. Where is the wise man, he says. Where is the scholar? Bring on your PhDs. Where is the debater, the argumentative person of this age. Then he says, where is the teacher of the law? It's a Jewish wise person from the Jewish group, Jesus' people. And he says, all right, bring on the best of the non-Jewish people, the debaters, the scholars. Where are you? All right, now you're here. Okay, where are the Jewish law teachers? And then he says this, verse 20, 21, he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So he, both the wise Jewish teachers of the law and the supposedly wise Gentile philosophers. I mean, you see him. Where is Plato? Where is Aristotle? Where is Archimedes? Where is Herodotus? He's calling them all. Summon yourselves. God has made your wisdom foolish now. Doesn't mean they didn't get some things right. At the end of the day, it's foolishness compared to the cross of Jesus. Why? Verse 21 explains this more. How is that so? When the world looked at the cross, it was not what they would consider wise. When they looked at the life of Jesus, it wasn't what they would consider 
a wise life. They thought Jesus was a fool. In Mark, we read, even his family thought he was crazy. When Jesus, the Son of God, showed up in his wisdom, the world, through its wisdom, did not recognize Jesus to be who he said he was. And so the Jews and the Gentiles together, the high priests of Israel and the Roman government, both together, killed him on a cross, tag-teaming him. They thought the life Jesus lived and the message that Jesus and his disciples preached was utter foolishness. But it was through the supposed foolishness of what they were preaching that God chose to save everyone who trusts in Jesus. In verse 22, Paul goes on to explain why they thought the cross was foolish. He says that the Jews were looking for signs. See that in verse 22? The Jews looked for signs. The Greeks, these Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they look for wisdom. Bring the books. We want to see wisdom. Bring on these gifted teachers, dynamic teachers that they loved to follow. But Paul and his fellow teachers, they preach Christ crucified. Now the word Christ here is really important. You ever heard the word Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ. Christ is not his middle name. Okay? It's a title. Like Jesus the President. Christ is a title meaning God's special king. His anointed king. King of earth and heaven. Right? Promised to Israel. Promised by the prophets of old. The ancient prophets of Israel. Speaking by the spirit of God. Said there would be a king. Born of a woman born of a virgin in the line of David. And he would come and he would crush the enemies of God's people and he would restore Israel to greatness. And yet Paul is preaching that this Messiah, this hope of the teachers of the law of Israel was crucified on a cross. To them, they were looking for, the Jews were looking for signs from the Messiah. Signs that he was going to show up in power, mighty power, and defeat the Romans, the people who had enslaved them, and set them free. They had a plan for what their Messiah was going to do. He was going to be a conquering king. What they got was a Messiah. He did a lot of signs, raising dead people, healing thousands, and yet, he also ate and drank with the least of society. With prostitutes and tax collectors, which were like the IRS, but crooked. Okay? Well, maybe you say the IRS is crooked. But regardless, these were not people you wanted to be friends with. And Jesus was inviting himself into their homes and saying, salvation has come to your house. And the Pharisees were saying... He eats with dirty people. We don't want anything to do with that. And they were calling him the friend of sinners. We, not If they had t-shirts made back then, they would have had not my king on that. Okay? If you've seen the not my president t-shirts for Trump. They would have not my king t-shirts for Jesus. He wasn't the king that they wanted. Jesus was a stumbling block to them. They tripped on him, says Paul, which 
Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah, predicts that the Messiah, when he comes, would be a stone, like a stone that people would trip on. They tripped on him. He wasn't what they were expecting. He had came to die for their sins, to conquer their greatest enemy, Satan and death and hell, the grave itself. And they were not ready for that. Jesus is a stumbling block. And he foolishness to the Gentiles. A God who truly becomes human and takes on flesh, like really becomes a man, that idea was ridiculous to them. The gods believed that Zeus, for example, could disguise himself as a man and come to earth and hang out with the ladies. But to actually become a man, that was foolish. The divine is far higher than us. The divine would never lay aside their power like that and get crucified? That's just ridiculous. And then to rise from the grave again? That's like the cherry on top of stupidity. Let me get this straight. You're saying your God had the stupidity to come, actually become a man and to actually get butchered on a cross and do nothing about it and then he wanted to come back as a man? Foolishness. What? Who does this guy... This guy doesn't learn his lesson. Raised bodily? It's foolishness to Greeks. So preaching Christ and him crucified to the wise of the world, both the Greeks and the Jews, they, they just shook their heads in scorn. But to those whom God has called, verses 24 to 25, both Jews and Greeks, when people hear the call, follow Jesus, and they actually hear it, and Jesus starts to be attracted to them, and the miracle of the Spirit works in their hearts, and they say, I want to follow this man. To those people, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. They start to see the, the cross as, a, as the mightiest moment in the history of the world. And the most wise move that God could ever have made. For, says Paul, the foolishness of God. What is the foolishness they're preaching? It's the cross that looks foolish to the world. The foolishness of God, the cross, is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The cross is a mighty cross. Those who are perishing, dying, may shake their heads in disbelief and scorn at our Lord Jesus. But those who are being saved, they have an altogether different experience of the Lord. Both Jews and Gentiles who hear the call of God to follow the Lord Jesus, whose eyes are opened, I need forgiveness. My life is a mess. I'm weak. I can't do it myself. And they see the cross and realize they need Jesus. They see him as the power and the wisdom of God for salvation. And that's the second main point this morning. We won't spend as much time on this one. The cross is God's wisdom and power to those being saved. On the cross... Jesus, the Son of God, turned the wisdom of the world on its head. 
The wisdom of the Jewish experts of their Bibles, they expected from the writings of the prophets that the Messiah would come and conquer. And they were right to expect that. Psalm 110, for example, verse 2, says of the Messiah that the Lord will extend the mighty scepter of Messiah from Zion and he'll say, rule in the midst of your enemies. But... The prophets also said that somehow this Messiah would be a suffering servant who would die like a lamb. You're scaring the baby, aren't you? <laughs> there's, a, there's a suffering servant coming. He's not just going to rule. He's also going to conquer his people's sins. He's going to die for their sins. And so it would in the death of the Messiah, Jesus, that the prophets, like Isaiah, Isaiah 53, chapter 53, predicted that Jesus, that the, he would defeat his people's greatest sin. Sin, death, hell, the devil. Our king conquers from a cross. Christ crucified he is the wisdom of God. Foolishness to those who don't think they need it. I don't need somebody to pay for my sins. I'll pay for them myself, thank you very much. I'll fix myself. I'll clean up my life eventually. I don't need somebody else to do it for me. But it is power to those who are being rescued who realize I can't. I need help. I need power that comes from outside me because I'm so stuck. I can't do it. And for those who realize they're weak, they see the cross, it becomes to them the wisdom of God. And so Paul concludes with his final comment here, verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So if you take all the sum of human wisdom and you add it up, the foolishness of God on the cross is wiser than that human wisdom. And if you take all the strength of man and you add it together, all the signs of human greatness and power, Huge armies, piles of money, limitless money, mighty kings and presidents and their nations, nuclear bombs. If you take all of the combined power of men, and then you take, in contrast to it, the weakness of a beaten and broken and mangled human hanging on a cross, crying out for his father to forgive his enemies. That weakness is stronger than all the strength of humanity. Amen. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because on the cross, Jesus defeats all the powers of hell with the love of God and the justice of God. You want to see how serious evil is? Look at the cross. Jesus is dying under the worst that humans could do at that time. Crucifixion. The worst that Jews and Gentiles with their combined wisdom could do to punish a man. Jesus is dying under it. And yet he's doing it for us. He's taking on the punishment for our sin on the cross. And then he 
rises from the grave triumphant. Nothing can stop him now. Commenting on this section of 1 Corinthians, one of the Bible scholars that I enjoy reading on this letter, his name is David Garland, he writes this. Let's listen to these words. He says, the gospel, that's a word that means good news, the gospel transforms the cross as a symbol of Roman terror and political domination into a symbol of God's love and power. It shows that the power of God's love is greater than human love of power. Very profound statement. The power of God's love shown on the cross is greater than human love of power. Friends, for the Romans, the cross was a symbol of domination and terror. They used the cross to terrify and subjugate their opponents. You would look at the cross, they would line the roads with their crosses, with dead and decaying people hanging there till they fell off. And you would think, this is what Rome does to those who double-cross her infinite power. Weak people, stupid people, got themselves crucified. Weak nations, shameful people were hung there naked to die in full view of the world as an example, a warning to others, don't mess with Rome, or you'll hang there too. And added to all this, the Jews, the teachers of the law, they believed that being hung on a tree was a sign of God's curse. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 23 in the law says this, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Why? Because this is the reverse. Being hung on a tree till, till you're dead is the reverse of what was supposed to be true of the tree in the Garden of Eden. The tree was to be a tree of life. But what is the, a tree of life has become an instrument of death. And so someone who is killed by what should have brought them life, surely they're under God's curse. And so you see Jesus hanging there, cursed by Rome and cursed by God. A weak man, a rejected man, a failed Messiah of the Jews. And they thought, what a loser. What a loser. And yet as Jesus hung there, in weakness, friends, it took every ounce of his mighty power to stay there. In Jesus' own words to his disciples, who wanted to use their power and their two little swords to stop the crucifixion of Jesus. When they show up to arrest him, they draw their swords. Let's get him! Jesus says, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, put your swords away. Do you not think that I can call my Father in heaven and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? If you're wondering, that's a lot. Jesus has access to total power and total control, and yet he chose to put himself on that cross and stay there. And the reason is in Matthew 26, verse 54. If he came down, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that said it must happen this way? The Jewish leaders had misunderstood their Bibles. Jesus had to go on the cross to take Israel's curse so that they didn't have to bear it if they trusted him. 
He was taking our shame. He was dying in our place. He was covering our evil with his perfect life, as the scriptures said that he must. And so in conclusion, on the foolish and weak cross, Christ powerfully saves those who believe. On the cross, God puts the power, his power and wisdom on full display in a way that turns the world's idea of power and wisdom upside down. So let's just spend a few minutes applying this to our lives. The cross of Jesus teaches us that we really need to rethink the way that we as humans are wired to view power and significance and influence and success in this life. Think about that with me for a few minutes. How, how do people in general, maybe you, how do we how do you generally view power and wisdom? I think in general we view power as the ability to act in the world in ways that accomplish our will in the world. What we think is good. And you say, well, we think is good for other people. Well, yeah. It's, it's the power to act in the world in a way that conforms the world, even just in our little slice of the world, into a world that we like better. And we view wisdom and knowledge as the guiding force for power. Power without wisdom is like a bomb. It goes off, but has no control of where it goes. And wisdom without power is like a world-class surgeon with terminal cancer. He has all the wisdom you need to fight cancer, but he is powerless to heal himself. So again, we as humans, we use power and wisdom knowledge together constantly to bring about our will on earth, to defeat what we view as evil, and to bring about what we view as good. And we use all sorts of things as tools in the hands of power. Money is a mighty and powerful tool that we use to accomplish our will. That can be good or evil. It can contribute to the flourishing of humanity or not. But we use it as a powerful tool. We use cars and airplanes and boats to wield power over distance. Right? The faster the car, the more power I have to get from here to there. It's a tool. It extends human power. We use levers and winches and pulleys and cranes and excavators to wield power to extend our power as humans over heavy objects. We use shouting to wield power over those who disagree with us so we can control them and get them to do what we want. Because we feel like what we want is best for the world. We use friends and allies, people we team up with, who have the same interests to wield power with us together against the enemies of those interests. Our will, our desire, could be good or evil from God's perspective, but still we use power to accomplish things in the world. Power is necessary to do anything in life. Preach. Sit, breathe oxygen, requires power. And so that's why you almost never see someone who's willing to give up power. To give up power would mean to make yourself weak. 
And to be weak is to be at the mercy of the unpredictability of this world and of other people. To give up power means you can no longer protect yourself from being hurt. It means you won't have the strength to bend the world to your will anymore. Well, here's the sad reality of being human, this side of the new creation. Every day that you and I live, we are losing power. The more power we gain, the closer we come to the day when we lose it all. Death is the great power grasper. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? They're dirt right now. The ones Paul is talking about. And so will be the ones of our day and age. Death is the great power grasper. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they grasped for knowledge and power to rule the world their way apart from their creator. Our way, God. That was the problem in the Garden. And they were condemned. They were cut off from God. They lost all power apart from their creator. Death was their fate. Death is the great power taker. People use powerful tools to take the power of life from others and plunge them into death, right? Like a nuclear bomb. To take the life from others. But the reality is, death is coming for all power takers. It's coming for everyone. Our human quest for power is doomed from the start. And even those who seek to use their power to advance their nation's power, like even though I'll lose my power and die, at least my nation will succeed. I'll live for something bigger than myself. You know what? Every nation under the sun is either rising or declining and will die. Nations come and nations go. The irony of our human existence is that though we have this insatiable yearning for power, we're losing it every day. And then we come to Jesus, who willingly gave up his power. All of it. He who had the most power of anyone, the ruler of the universe, the creator of the world, gave up his power, became a man, and was humbled to the point of death on the cross. All his life, as he was walking on earth, he was a giver, giving up of his power. Giving to those who were weak. Healing the sick. Using the power of his authority to drive out demons. To dead people. He would give the power of life. He even raised the dead, like Lazarus. And people would just keep taking and taking and taking from him, and he kept giving and giving, because the Father was strengthening him the whole time by the Spirit to keep carrying on. But then on the cross, Jesus was stripped of his final belongings on earth. He gave up his last breath. And in Jesus' weakness, he did it for us to take punishment for our sins. With mighty power, he absorbed the worst that evil could do, including death. And I've said before, God gave it back and resurrection life. And so now, Jesus, the one with all power, stands ready to give strength and power to those who receive his Holy Spirit. And like him, stand against evil with the power of the cross and forgiveness and the love we find there. The kingdoms of this world, the way that they fight power is with power. Okay? 
another nation gets nuclear warheads, we got to have bigger ones. Because we want to disincentivize them from using their ones against ours. And then all of a sudden they get bigger ones. So what do we got to do? We got to get bigger ones. And if they get bigger ones, and then somebody pulls the trigger, and every blow... Will that happen? Only God knows, right? But this is the way the world works. We fight power with power. Taking power, losing power. But the kingdom of God stands and says to the forces of evil with the powerful authority of Christ, do your worst. Expend your power on us. You too, though, will die one day. But our God is the resurrection and the life. This is how persecuted Christians who are facing the powers of evil, even now in our world, can say, you can kill my body with your power, but you cannot take my soul. My king will raise this dust that become, that my body is going to become one day. There is power in weakness, the power of God. So as we close, what, a, what does it practically mean? There's countless ways to apply this wisdom. I'll just ask you, do you shy away from weakness, from being vulnerable, from things that make you look weak or feel weak? The Apostle Paul spoke about weakness like this. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10, he says, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Paul, Paul's not grab. Paul doesn't brag about all the trophies in his house. He, he brags about the things that make him look weak. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know about you, but weakness and feelings of inadequacy and being overwhelmed are regular parts of my life. And every day and all throughout the day, we, we follow Jesus, have a choice. Do our weaknesses lead us to throw ourselves on God and his strength and acceptance and love? Or do they lead us to put others down so we feel better about ourselves? Or to wallow in despair or in the numbing drug of distraction? Or do we embrace our feelings of powerlessness as reminders of how much we need the resurrection power of God? So friends, may your sickness right now, whatever, if you're sick, may it push you to Christ who will raise us all one day. May your feelings of loss push you into the strong arms of the one who comforts. May your feelings of powerlessness push you into the arms of the one who became powerless for your salvation. He knows how you feel. Come to go to him for strength. May feelings of hopelessness, despair, push you into the arms of the one who is hope eternal. And may your lack of knowledge about what to do Everybody, like, I don't know what to do. May it drive you into the arms of the one who knows all things and who loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, there is so much more that we could take from this. I just pray that you would use whatever has been helpful to stir us up for, with love for Jesus. I pray that we would see the cross as your wisdom as your way of dealing with evil. 
And I pray that we would copy that in our own lives. That we wouldn't respond to evil by reeling back our arm and responding with power and more power. That we would conquer evil with love, with forgiveness, with the cross. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you more and more. Be with us now as we go to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.